Good evening, everybody. So good to be with you. If you're brand new with us, you've never been with us before, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome everybody joining us via live stream here tonight for Good Friday. Good Friday. Called Good Friday because of what was accomplished. But easily could have been called Bad Friday for what was experienced. Jesus was beaten. His body torn open because of a whip, a cat of nine tails, a thorn shaped, or a crown shaped with thorns pressed into his head, nails pounded into his wrists and into his feet. He was mocked, he was spit on, he was hung naked on a tree. That's a bad Friday. But to know why Good Friday is so good when it might have seemed so bad, we really have to see the whole picture. We really have to go back to the very beginning of the story. To the very beginning of the story that starts in Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the first book of the scripture, it says that God creates a perfect world. A perfect world, separating light from dark, filling the heavens with stars and moons and galaxies. Separates water from land, filling them with trees and flowers and birds and animals and fish in the sea. All shapes, all colors, all sizes. And then he finally puts into his world humans. The crown jewel of his creation. Made in his image. And he created them on the sixth day, Friday. He loved his world because it was good. He said it after every day. He said it after the seventh day. Excuse me, the sixth day. This is very good. All was as it was supposed to be. He places the first humans, Adam and Eve, into the garden. He gives them instructions on how to flourish within his good and perfect world. You can enjoy all that is here. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3, just a couple of chapters later, the serpent or the devil, the enemy, tempts Adam and Eve to go against God's way. Humanity believes the lie that God's holding out on them, and they rebel. Saying to God, we think we can do a better job than you. We want to determine good and evil for ourselves. We should be God. So the goodness doesn't last long. The perfection doesn't last long. Death and evil are invited into God's good world. Sin has infected the world. God, his beautiful creation is broken. Not the way it's supposed to be. And when all of this happens, Adam and Eve hide. They hide in shame, the scripture says. God's looking for them. Where are you? This is not normal. Something has, something has shifted. Something has changed. He finds them. He talks to them. And he says, what happened? What did you do? They describe what they did. And here is God's immediate response. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, meaning her offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's response to the broken creation wasn't to throw his hands up in the air and say, well, I guess we tried. He wasn't to throw his hands up in the air and say, well, that was a bust, uh, you know, hope you guys can figure it out. It wasn't anger at Adam and Eve. It was anger at the enemy. His immediate response was anger and a curse at the enemy and a promise. A promise to send a snake crusher. Not only does he give his first energies to the snake to curse it, he then says, I'm going to deal with what you did. He loves his world. So his angry response is born out of love. He loves it too much to leave it in its broken state. So he curses the snake, promises a snake crusher, so that sin and death would be dealt with and God's good world would be healed. Then he told Adam and Eve that childbearing, marriage, and work would be hard. And then he says in Genesis chapter 1, the end of the chapter, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. And then he would live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. What's he saying? You can't come in here in the broken state that you're in. You cannot eat of this tree. I've got to deal with the state first. Verse 24, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the first three chapters of this big, thick book. Then we have the rest of the Old Testament. God chooses a family, and he says that through this family will come the snake crusher. But we see throughout all of the Old Testament the outworking of sin and death, sibling rivalry, murder, adultery, Drunkenness, child sacrifice, racial hostility, idolatry, and greed, just to name a few. Sin had infected everything. Sin had even infected his people, his chosen people. So things are looking very bad, very bleak, and very dark by the end of the Old Testament. And it is in this darkness that Jesus shows up. When it maybe seemed like everything was lost. Jesus, as the offspring of the woman, as the snake crusher promised by God, shows up on the scene. He lives his life. Talks about this coming kingdom. How things are changing. 
And he ultimately then goes to the cross. And he goes to the cross not just to crush the snake by enduring physical agony and abandonment and rejection and betrayal. Jesus goes to the cross not just to crush the head of the serpent as punishment, but to reverse the curse. To undo everything that had happened in those first couple, or that chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis. See, what Jesus did in his life, death, burial, and resurrection was an opposite and counteractive activity. See, Adam and Eve said yes to the enemy in paradise and are sent to the wilderness. Jesus, tempted by the enemy, says no to the enemy in the wilderness and then invites humanity to paradise. Adam and Eve reject God's will in the Garden of Eden, thus throwing away eternal life and embracing death. Jesus, he submits to the will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, thus embracing death to bring eternal life. Adam and Eve give in to the temptation in the Garden of Eden and indulge themselves. But Jesus opposite, resists temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane and gives himself for others. Opposite, counteractive activity. Adam and Eve begin in paradise, but are forced outside the gates due to the curse. Jesus, he dies outside the gates to undo the curse and ends up in paradise. Adam and Eve hid naked behind a tree, covered in shame. Jesus hung naked on a tree and conquered shame. Opposite and counteractive activity. Jesus didn't just crush the head of the serpent to kill him. He reversed the curse. See, in Eden, the enemy turned the best scenario, perfect, into the worst. But on Calvary, God turned the worst into the best. See, the cross of Jesus is the great reversal. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talking about what was really going on. He says this in verse 18, just as one, he's talking about Adam in the very beginning, trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, brought infection into the world. So also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as though through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus, Paul calls the second Adam. To undo that which was done. Jesus, bore the weight of sin for the whole world so we could be free from it. Jesus, the perfect one, came not because he did it, but because he loved it. He loved us. He loved his world too much to let it be. Why? For the greater good. For something more than just, oh, I think I can handle the pain. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross. The cross required endurance. Endurance. Agonizing pain. Not just physical pain. Emotional distance from God. Why have you abandoned me, he says. Scorning its shame. Hanging naked outside of the cross outside of the gates. Crucifixion was meant to be a shameful experience. To communicate something profound to the people around. Don't rise up. You can't do this. But he embraced it. For the joy set before him. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus went through the worst to bring the best. He went through bad to make it good. He was shamed to take our shame. He took on the weight of sin to break us free from sin. See, on Friday, God created humans and called it good. On Friday, God saved humanity and called it good and finished. See, you and I can't overcome sin by ourselves. We can't heal the infection on our own. Salvation, what Jesus did was a gift. It was a gift for you and for me. The reason we stop here on Good Friday and remember the pain and the power of the cross is is to acknowledge the agony and the pain and the difficulty and the sadness when the disciples left Calvary or they saw what had happened, they didn't rejoice thinking, oh wow, look what he did, that was so awesome. No, they walked away sad and disillusioned and and confused and maybe in despair. I thought it was over. See, we, we journey to the cross on our way to the tomb. Are you living under the weight of shame tonight? You find yourself unable to kind of come up for air? Do you find yourself trying to set yourself free? Good Friday is good for you. It's good for me. It wasn't good for Jesus on that day, but it was good for you, and it was good for me. Because he did what we could not do. Break the power of sin and death. Deal with the serpent and crush his head. Heal the the infection, not only in our hearts, but in the whole world. Jesus did it. Question tonight is, will you receive that gift? Will you receive the gift of grace and salvation? Will you receive the gift? Will you look to the cross and say, Jesus, just like the the Roman centurion, he says, surely he is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he was. He is the king. He's not the king like we all thought he was going to be, triumphing over the Romans, but he is the king that overcame sin and death. Wow, he's a greater king than we could have ever imagined, doing it in a way that we could have never fathomed. Will you receive the gift of forgiveness and grace? Receive the gift of saying, you are the one who saves. You saved me. 
Friday is a fact. So good. If that's you, maybe just under your breath and in your heart, would you just say, Jesus, I surrender. I surrender my life to you. It's as simple as that, to receive that free gift. The offer and the invitation, a couple thousand years later, is the same to you and to me. The question is, will we receive it? Tonight, we're going to remember the power and the pain of the cross through communion. We're going to take communion together, and so everybody should have received a communion cup on your way in. If you did not, you can just raise your hand, and one of the host team will be, let's look for your hand, and we'll be able to make sure that you get a little communion cup. So if you would, just keep your hand raised. If you did not receive a communion cup, we'll get that to you. Maybe you're new with Mill City. Maybe your first time here. We practice what we call open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to participate with us. It's just a way of saying, I embrace what you did on the cross. If you choose not to participate with us, that's okay. But we believe that participating in communion is not about membership in a particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. So if even just a moment ago, for the first time, or the first time in a long time, you said, Jesus, I surrender my life, we encourage you to take communion with us. The scripture also says that before we take communion, we're supposed to examine ourselves. So I'm going to give you just a a moment to just reflect. I want you to allow God to examine your heart. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Search me and know me, O God. See if there is any anxious or offensive way in me. Is there any way that you find yourself anxious tonight? Maybe the anxiousness is because we don't trust God. Maybe there's an offensive way in us in the way that we view someone else. We don't see someone else made in the image of God. Maybe it's the way that we've treated our neighbor. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. It might be your, your spouse or your roommate, your parent, your sibling, your kids. Whatever it might be, would you just open your heart towards God? Taking a moment of examination, and even in that moment, a moment of confession. Open our hearts honestly and thoroughly before God.